Romans 3, verse 27 to 4, uh, verse 12. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Now we're in Romans, and uh, if you turn up to where Sam read from chapter 3, verse 27, you may have thought, gosh, what's all that about? A little complex argument about Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And uh, it is complex, and we'll get our heads around the argument, but it's got a very, very powerful very powerful application for every church, not least um, our own. Now, we study Romans to give us confidence in the gospel. Now, why, why does Paul write Romans to a church like the church in Rome that knows the gospel so well? Why do you write to a church like Chalmers, I guess, and we do believe in the simple gospel? We know the gospel. Why do we need confidence in it? Well, for a range of reasons, because we don't have confidence, for example, in its power to save people. I don't, really. You know, really confident that it will save people. And a number of us will have doubts, lack assurance. 
Is it really true that all I can do is reach out empty-handed to Jesus for my salvation? Is it really true that if I'm going through a bleak time in my Christian life, or a really good time, that God looks at me and he says, I don't see anything different in terms of their status in my eyes. You know how when you're having a tough time in the Christian life, you say something like, I need to get right with God. And Romans will tell us that we are. That's a big difference. Now, let me just bring us up to speed with where we are in Romans. And we'll do this for the last time today, just as guys begin to come and settle down in in church. Paul's argument so far he begins with an introduction in 1, 1 to 17. You'll see some notes on the back of the service sheet. And then you've got this big chunk, 118 to 320. That's a lot, 80-odd verses, in which Paul explains and then goes over the ground again and again because It's hard for us as human beings to accept this, that all of us are unrighteous and under God's judgment. And that means condemned to everlasting judgment. And Paul is thoughtful and persuasive in his argument because it takes time to dismantle human pride. And uh, he does mean no exceptions. There's a little bit in all of our hearts that says, but what about? But surely. But it can't be. All are unrighteous, and that includes good people, morally upright people who are relying on their moral standing to get right with God. Self-righteous people. If I use a phrase like self-righteous, we immediately think of some kind of, I don't know, kind of Pharisee-type figure. Self-righteousness is something that comes very naturally to us. It just means that I think I'm okay, at least relative to lots of other people. The root of self-righteousness, that I have some standing before God, has human pride. But it can also be a simple misunderstanding. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to hear that your own moral standing or goodness is never going to be enough to save you. And that can come as a a shock, but also as a wonderful encouragement. So stop trying to climb a ladder that has endless, endless steps. All are unrighteous and under God's judgment. It includes good people, and it includes religious people. Now, if I say religious people, you'll think none of us are religious people. Let me encourage us that we are religious people. What we're doing this morning is religion. We're all sitting in rows. The front rows are always empty. That's a particular brand of religion in this country. We sing songs. We stand up. We sit down. We pray. That's religion. Religion is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But it's not going to save us. Our heritage, our our background. Some of you guys will come from strong Christian homes, as I have come from. 
When one generation, two generations, three generations back are Bible people. That doesn't save you. It's great and a blessing, but it doesn't save you. Because all are unrighteous before God and need to have faith. So Paul's uh, devastating conclusion, or wonderful conclusion, chapter 3, verse 10, no one is righteous, no, not one. And uh, I suspect when Paul wrote that, he would get to that point in his letter, and he would think, well, now it's time to move on to the solution. And when you're preaching, you become aware that we get to the point where we now move on, but have we moved on? Have we all got to the point, chapter 3, verse 10, that we are convinced that no one is righteous, no, not one? There are two things to be convinced of. To be convinced that I am not righteous. I think that's probably easier to be convinced of than no one Say in this city, think of the students in the city, 90,000 of you, that's a lot. No one is righteous by heritage, by background, by circumstance, by works, by goodness, by religion, not a single one. Now when you get your head around that, that no one out there is righteous, and you understand that the consequences of unrighteousness are judgment, then that motivates us to evangelism, which is why we keep running Christianity Explored. It begins again a week on Monday. It's, it's another opportunity. Another opportunity. Now, God himself has provided the solution to our predicament. It is a glorious, it is a wonderful solution. Chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. I encourage you to listen to that sermon online. It's a key, key passage. And uh, let me just read in these verses again so we're clear. But now, verse 21 of chapter 3, as the answer to this terrible predicament, the righteousness of God has been manifested or revealed apart from the law, that's the Old Testament law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, literally declared righteous, by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And you think, what's all that about? Now, they are theological words. Bible words have Bible meanings. Let me explain it like this. When Jesus Christ died in his cross, was he or was he not, when he lived on the earth, a righteous man? He was the only righteous man ever to live. Fully God, fully human. He was divine. He was righteous. He had a relationship with God. God the Father, God the Son. They were one. Jesus, when he died on the cross, bore our sin and bore 
the wrath of God for our sin. That's what propitiation means. It means that the wrath of God, the judgment of God for your sin and my sin was extinguished or exhausted when he died. When he said, it is finished, all the wrath of God for your sin, if you were a Christian, all that judgment stored up that would be poured out on you for eternity was extinguished. It's gone. When Christ died. And what can you do then? As you stand at the foot of the cross. Think of the cross in your mind. When you stand at his feet. And see his broken body and blood shed. All you can do. Is reach out with empty hands. You can't offer him your moral goodness. You can't plead your religious observance. You can't plead your family history, your name, your heritage, your Bible knowledge. All you can do is hold out empty hands. Now that is what justification, being declared righteous by grace, a grace gift, a merciful gift, undeserved gift, by faith, empty-handed receiving of a gift in Christ alone, means. And it's helpful to have the picture of the cross always in your mind and Jesus dying. And then the doctrine or the theological truth, which is written there, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Christ dying for you, bearing your sin, bearing God's wrath, you at the foot of his cross, holding out empty hands. That's the solution to our predicament. Now, we may agree with that in our heads. It's one thing, I think, to have it in your heads. And Paul is really strong on the, the understanding in the mind. Yep. But you need it in your heads, and you need it in your hearts. You need to be affected by it. It needs to affect you. So when you stand in your mind's eye at the foot of the cross and dwell on these great truths, it must affect you. That had it not happened, and had you not reached out to him in empty hands, the everlasting judgment of God was on your head. It must affect you that people you know who do not believe in Jesus have not been forgiven. The mind, the heart, and the will, it must move you. Now, what Paul goes on to do now from 3.27 is to say, okay, here's this doctrine, Chalmers Church, yeah? Or every local church. We all agree, we all tick the box. So if I ask you all, do you believe in justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? I do. And Paul now begins to say, well, okay, let's, let's consider what the implications of that will be for you as a family of people here. What difference is it going to make? What, what's it going to do to you as a church? Now, uh, hence uh, what Paul writes that Sam uh, read. And uh, you'll see two headings on the sheet. We're going to just do one today and the other one next week. The gospel is the great leveler building unity. Yeah, now that sounds, a, well, 
Hopefully you understand that. The gospel, justification by grace alone through faith alone, is going to engage our minds, our hearts, and our wills, and convince us, and move us, and motivate us to live as people who are fundamentally and exactly of the same status in the eyes of God. Now, when you walked into church this morning, everything in our humanity and in our world will say to us that we are not of fundamental equality. There's ranks and there's human pride. We look down on each other. We resent others. There's a bitterness in the human soul and in the human spirit. The gospel says we are fundamentally the same. Now, this is where we need to get our heads around Paul's argument. Imagine this letter being read out to the church in Rome. On this side of the room, we, we had the other side of the room in the first service, they began to be quite self-conscious by the end. This is being read out in the... All of you on this side of the room have a Jewish background. You're Jews. But you've trusted in Jesus Christ for your salvation. In other words, you've realized that the Jewish faith always pointed you to Jesus. You're Jewish Christians. But you guys have got a rich, rich heritage behind you. You're, you're Bible people. You've got generations behind you. You were God's chosen people. You still are. Over here, slightly smaller in number, are the Gentile Christians in the church in Rome. The newbies. People who some of you over here think are a little bit less inside than you are. And over here, you Gentile Christians look over there and you think, well, these guys patronize me. They look down on me. And what Paul is trying to do is he's taking these two disparate groups in that church in Rome and he's trying to fundamentally unite them. Why is he trying to unite them? Because if they are not united in terms of their fundamental relationships and equality, they will not be engaged in the primary purpose of the church that is mission. Now, that's just as true of our church as any other church. If we go home for Sunday lunch, and the true temperature of a church is never halfway through a sermon, it's halfway through the roast lamb. If we go home for Sunday lunch and there are petty disagreements and pride or arrogance or insecurity or critical spirits or a lack of real unity, then we will not engage in the primary purpose of the church that is mission. Think of your CU, those of you in the CU, that's just as true. Unless you are humbled and united in the gospel, you'll not engage in the primary purpose, which is mission. Now, pride can manifest itself in two ways. Disunity, the key factor that causes disunity is pride, yeah? Pride manifests itself in two ways. 
And this is all the background to what is in Paul's mind. We'll get to the text in a minute, but you need to understand what's going on fundamentally so we can apply it to ourselves as we study it. Pride manifests itself in two ways. The pride that sees oneself as superior to others for a range of reasons. That's what I was saying to you. We've been in church for a long time, perhaps in a leadership role, perhaps you're a minister. Or or here's a phrase that would freak the Apostle Paul out. Core families in the church. And that's a phrase we use, isn't it? They're a core family. They're the heart of the church. That's a contradiction in gospel terms. A core family. Or they are knowledgeable, know the Bible well, comfortable in a theological discussion, or they're very gifted. And if you're one of these people, you find yourself presenting someone who is perhaps quite new and being given leadership responsibility, someone who is gifted and wants to serve in your area. And maybe your resentment is because their life or past is one you'd question, have concerns about. I mean, there is a little bit of truth in that, isn't it? You've served faithfully and dutifully and, uh, and a little bit self-righteously for a long, long time, and some upstart comes in whose life's a bit of a shambles and they're converted, and then they start doing evangelism, and you say, well, just you wait, it'll get harder. That's how we are. Now, here's the other form of pride, which is just as dangerous We might call it reverse pride, a sense of inferiority because you lack the kind of pedigree that others in the church seem to have. Maybe you've not been a Christian long. You don't come from a Christian background. You would not be comfortable doing a Bible study on your feet. You haven't read the right books or used the right jargon. Your family life is a little bit of a mess. And you think others, the insiders, who know the Bibles well and can do apologetics talks and all that kind of stuff, you think the insiders look down on you and patronize you when they speak to you. And you do not feel that you do not feel as God looks on you and says that person is as righteous as that person. You don't feel it. You don't think it. And and Paul will come at this later on. Some people who feel on the outside actually come to terms with the fact that it's quite nice to be on the outside because you don't have to do anything. So you stay there and you begin to resent those on the inside. Now what deals with Pride or injured pride? What deals with arrogance or insecurity that stops a church being fundamentally united? What breaks it down? Well, the answer is a clear understanding of the gospel and to be affected and changed by that understanding. The answer is that whoever you are and whoever that person is over there whose eye you have just caught. You are both justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You don't become justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, after being a Christian for ten years. Ten minutes. One minute. Zero minutes. Here's a great gospel hymn. Imagine this. A senior elder in the church who has been, quote, at the heart of church life for years and is a member of a core family. He is a gifted Bible teacher sitting next to him hypothetically, someone who has been in trouble all his life. Let me think of the first service. It was pretty full up, okay? There was no seats left, so the two of them met at the door, and they had to sit beside each other. And even though this is a church family, all they could do is kind of exchange a nod. bit embarrassing, really. And the individual had been a pain all his life, 
and was a pain in the church, caused a lot of havoc. And the final hymn in the service was, To God be the glory, great things he has done. And during the singing of a verse of that hymn, that difficult individual from that dodgy background was converted as they sang. O perfect redemption, the purchase of blood to every believer, the promise of God, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon received. And at that moment, that person with all the heritage and background and giftedness and leadership and service, justified by grace alone through faith alone in Christ, at that moment, this other person, justified by grace alone through faith alone, were absolutely united. So what did they do at the end of the service? They had a big hug. And the, the elder said, brother, it's just wonderful you've been converted. And the other one said, you know, I no longer feel inferior to you. Do you think that happened? I don't think so. It takes the gospel to so thoroughly invade our minds and our hearts and our wills for these barriers to be broken down. And a church that is fundamentally transformed by the gospel, we'll have both these people engaging in evangelism together, relishing each other's conversion. Now, these are extreme examples, but think, of the, think inside the brackets. Paul doesn't believe that you are all yet convinced that the people around you, as God looks at them, are equally valued and equally part of a united household of God. A church that really grasps the gospel cannot be a pro-church. A pro-church and a gospel church are oxymorons. Impossible. Now, that's what's going on here. And with that in mind, let's look quickly at the detail of Paul's argument. Really, as Sam read it, if we read it again now, and I'll just walk you through it, you'll understand that's exactly what he's saying. But you've got to have in your mind that he is speaking to, to Jewish Christians here, people who have been Jews, all their heritage, who have become an over here Gentile Christians. And, and translate that in our church family to, 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 to all the differences that, that might divide us. Yeah? I mean, a very powerful example of is a person standing up here behind this lectern is no different from any of you, and you no different from any of me. I have no right to be the insider, and you have no right to be the outsider. I think that's right. I think people like to stay on the outside as much as people like to stay on the inside. We're just the same. Just punters, sinners, saved by grace. God looks at us, and he sees his son. You look around the church in your mind. God sees Jesus everywhere. It's what we should see. Verse 27, then. And uh, we will get through all of this in eight minutes, I promise. You don't believe a word I say to you. Then. In other words, as a consequence of the fact that all, Jew and Gentile, are justified by grace alone through faith alone. And he is addressing here primarily the Jewish Christians on this side of the room. 
what becomes of our, Paul is a Jew himself, boasting? It is excluded. There's no room. Why is there no place for pride for the Jewish Christians? Why is there no place for pride for the Bible people who have been soaked in it for generations? The answer Paul gives is what the Old Testament scriptures teach, the Jewish Bible. The law in verse 27 is the Old Testament scriptures. What is it that they teach that excludes boasting and pride. Verse 27, And what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law, by what kind of scriptures? By scriptures of works, by scriptures that teach justification by works? No, but by the law of faith. It is excluded by scriptures, your scriptures, Genesis to Malachi, the Old Testament, that teach justification by faith. All that your scriptures do that you cherish and value so highly, you might even worship them. All they do is expose in your heart your sin and your need of Jesus. Now, on this side of the room in the church in Rome, maybe just a little smidgen of humility or realization has come upon some of these people that all their heritage, all their heritage, think of maybe some of you have come from strong Christian homes as I did. All that heritage is nothing to boast about. It's just what God has used to show you how much you need Jesus. The heart of the Old Testament scriptures is the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law. All the Mosaic law did was show people that they could not be justified by works or by keeping the law because it was a ladder that you could never reach the top of. Now, many Christians today misunderstand the Old Testament Scriptures. A common misunderstanding is that they teach justification by works, and the New Testament turns it on its head and teaches justification by faith. The problem with that approach is that that's not what it says, and the other problem with that approach is that God suddenly reversed gear or changed his mind. That's a, a frightening thing if that's true. Verse 28, For we hold, that's the Jews, for we hold that one is justified by faith. And Paul goes on, verses 29 to 30, God not only justifies Jews by faith, but also Gentiles by the same faith, is his point. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Verse 29, to you Jewish Christians on the left, is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. And you think, well, okay, he is, but in a sort of slightly lesser good way. Since God is one, that's the Old Testament Shema, the Lord our God is one who will justify the circumcised, that is the Jews, by faith, and the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, by faith. What unites you is faith, heritage, 
if anything, means that you lot over here have more reason to be humble than him. And then suddenly, pride swings in the church the other way. And we Gentiles over here goes, well, that's you told. You know, we love it, don't we, when someone is taken down who is arrogant. Real humility rejoices when someone is taken down, not in that human resentful way. Verse 31 simply reiterates the fact that Sam read this so clearly. Do we then overthrow the Scriptures by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the Scriptures of the Old and New Testament. We uphold the Old Testament Scriptures because they say the same thing. Justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The gospel is the great leveler building unity. Now, in chapter 4, verses 1 to 12, Paul proves his argument from the Old Testament Scriptures, and he does so by picking out two great giants of Jewish faith. Abraham, Father Abraham, and King David. Yet, how were they declared righteous by God? Okay, look at Abraham first. Verses 1 to 8, he picks up on verse 29 of chapter 3 to show that the Old Testament Scriptures do teach with Abraham as the example justification by faith. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather? Now surely of all people, if anyone had something to boast about, it was Abraham. He was a friend of God. He obeyed God. He was given so much responsibility. If Abraham, verse 2, was justified by works, he did have something to boast about. And then, really, in the Hebrew, there's a new set, but not before God. He had nothing, nothing before God to boast about. In God's assessment, Abraham has nothing to boast about. Why? Verse 3, for what does the Scripture, what do your own Scriptures say? And he quotes from Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God. Abraham had faith in God. And it, it was that, his faith, that was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham does not deserve to be counted righteous before God as a worker, deserves his wages. That's verse 4. No, verse 5, he did not work as to contribute anything to his salvation. Look carefully at verse 5. He trusted God who justifies the ungodly, which is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. And to the one, verse 5, who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as right. If Abraham had been standing at the foot of the cross, of course he wasn't because it was in the future, he would have, conscious of his own sin, held out his hands empty-handed. And therefore, his faith was credited to him. Now, the word credited to him as righteousness is because he believed in a promise. He believed in a promise. He was a sinful man who throws himself on the promises. And what about David, great King David? Verse 6, just as David also spoke of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, David spoke about justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He believed it in his own heart, with all his heart. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, like me, and his sins are covered. Justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then in verses 9 to 12 of chapter 4, 
Paul expands on his question and answer that he's already raised in verses 29 and 30 of chapter 3. So verse 9 of chapter 4, is this blessing then only for the circumcised, the Jews, or also for the uncircumcised, the outsiders? The answer, Paul says, is in your own Bible, the Scriptures of the Old Testament. We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? So was Abraham declared righteous before or after he was, in a sense, given the status of the Jew? The answer is before. Genesis 15. Genesis 17. The difference between the declaration of Abraham's righteousness and him being circumcised ethnically as a Jew, 14 years. Why? Verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had. What does that all mean? It means that you lot over here have just come to realize that Abraham, the great father of your faith, is the great father of theirs. And you've also come to realize that unless you have faith, your heritage doesn't matter at all. And you've come to realize in your insecurity that Abraham is the father of your faith. And the gospel was always for the Gentiles. Jews, first and then Gentiles. But the gospel was always for you. Israel was always to be a light to you. Right from the beginning when God called Abraham, he justified him before he was marked out as a Jew so that you would always know that you Gentile believers are not God's afterthought. His desire is the salvation of all people. The gospel is the great leveler. Now, let me finish with some applications to us. In many ways, you know, we all long for practical sermons. Do you want practical sermons? I like practical sermons that tell me how to do something and tell me how to do evangelism this week and tell me how to do it better and tell me how to be more united and more godly. Here are ten tips. There's one tip in the Bible for it all. Know, be affected by, and be transformed by the gospel. If we fundamentally understand the gospel, we'll stand and sing, and can it be, no condemnation now I dread in a few minutes, and you look around the room and you will think that everybody else is true, not more true, not less true, but just as true as you. And it will steal on your mind and heart. And we'll never get there till the new creation that we are, unlike any other group of people that meet anywhere else in the world, local churches are fundamentally, thoroughly united. And so all that disunites us by human background is left at the door when we come in and we leave. And all we talk about over lunch is evangelism and each other. And we rejoice in that problem person that's been converted. This week, the elders made 
or they confirmed a remit for Sam and his group to look at church planting. We haven't decided to do it yet, but in my heart at least, let me into you, we sneaky secret, I hope we do. We'll do it well. And if we are fundamentally and thoroughly gospel people, we'll rejoice in that. We'll get behind it. It'll thrill us. And we'll not worry about whether we're on the group or we're not. Be great. Practically, though, what does it look like for us? Well, here's some examples. Every single one of us in this room who is a Christian is justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If you think you're better than anyone else, well, you don't think that, but maybe, do we? Maybe we do. Maybe we do. How do you think, how do you speak of them? None of us deserve it nor merit it. All we have done is reach out empty-handed to Jesus. If you are a leader in the church, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. If there is pride, let the gospel humble you. If you are feeling the reverse of that, insecurity, resentment at those who perceive or you perceive to be in the in crowd, don't think of yourself less highly than you are. Let's never use words like in family or core people. <laughs> That's terrible. But we use it all the time, don't we? Who, who are, who's the heart of the CU? Who are the key people? If you've been a Christian for many years, know the Bible inside out. Don't look down on your Christians, people whose lives are less sorted than yours. Every single one of us is justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And these two people, you know that senior elder with the, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon received, there's just a little flickering of this is how their lives were when they came in, yeah? One up here, one down here. By the end of the service, and it's a church, isn't it? Churches are usually like that, on a slope. In people, outside people. Gospel churches are on a level. I mean, gospel churches are on a level. Their eyes lift up, and they look out to the great needs of the world. Let's pray that God's gospel will change us so thoroughly. Father God, we thank you for the pastoral applications of Paul's argument. We have to work hard to get our heads around the Jew and Gentile Christian context. But I hope and pray we have done that. And as we sing, Lord, these great words of Wesley, we pray that these words will firmly convince us that as you look in on this room from glory, you see all over this church men and women who bear the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You don't see rank or file or status or heritage or anything. Help us, Lord, to think the gospel, feel the gospel, be transformed by the gospel, that our eyes might be lifted up and outward-looking and encouraging to one another. For Jesus' sake.